As the world forever turned the page on the 17th century, everything appeared rosy for Napoleon Bonaparte. The little Corsican had risen all the way through the ranks of the French military. He had achieved landmark victories across two separate Italian campaigns, while successfully managing to spin his disastrous Egyptian campaign. In 1799, he led a bloodless coup d'etat against the ruling French Directory. Rather than sharing the power that he accrued, Napoleon risked it all, parlaying his popularity and wealth into a secondary coup, legitimizing himself as the Roman-styled consul for life. To all of France, it appeared as though the god of luck truly walked beside the man whose soldiers referred to as the ever-victorious little corporal. Napoleon spent the first few years of his rule in relative peace and quiet, during which time he rewrote the legal code, renovated the palatial estate of St. Cloud, and for the most part made up with his habitually unfaithful wife, Josephine. His luck, however, wasn't to last. Nehru, the former leader of the Republic of India, explains that men like Napoleon aren't meant to live in peace. The politician teaches that peace is not a relationship of nations. It is a condition of mind brought about by a serenity of the soul. Peace, he writes, is not merely the absence of war. It is also a state of mind. Lasting peace can only come to peaceful people. Still, it will be the English rather than Napoleon who begins the resumption of continental hostilities. This wasn't because the first consul desired peace. Rather, it was the fact that the British declared war before he had finished preparing for it. As a result, the continent of Europe would be plunged into a state of perpetual war for the next 11 years. Historian Tim Blanning identifies the significance of what was to come, writing that these Napoleonic wars were the crucible in which modern European nationhood was forged. The conflict and resulting treaties paved the way for the massive expansion of the dual ideologies of nationalism and liberalism in Europe. In the Americas, the Napoleonic Wars sealed America's regional hegemony by providing a legitimate path towards the goal of manifest destiny. The economic blockade of England, a result of Napoleon's inability to move his army across the Channel, led to the collapse of the East India Company, which in turn resulted in a direct takeover of the Indian subcontinent by Great Britain. Forced to live beneath austerity measures that required England to become self-sufficient, Britain would become the first nation to embark on the Industrial Revolution, setting the stage for their global dominance in the 20th century. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is the sixth in a series of eight regarding Napoleon Bonaparte. Episode number six, King of Europe, 
After Egypt, the French had made peace with its European counterparts. The Treaty of Luneville was signed with Austria on February 9, 1801, confirming borders established in 1797, as well as requiring Austria to acknowledge the humiliating loss of Belgium, as well as recognizing the French annexation of the left bank of the Rhine. That last part was crucial for France, as it was actively pursuing a policy of expansion to France's natural geographic boundaries. The Treaty of Amens was signed with Britain 14 months later in 1802. That peace agreement concluded a nine-year war between the two nation-states. It finally forced Great Britain to recognize the French Republic, as up to this point the King of England was still in the habit of referring to himself with the title of King of France, a practice that harkened back to the outbreak of the Hundred Years' War. The treaty also chipped away at the growing British Empire as they were forced to agree to restore Egypt to the Ottoman Empire, as well as returning Malta to the Knights of St. John. In exchange, France recovered most of their colonies, but agreed to evacuate Naples as well as the Papal States of Central Italy. The peace wasn't ever designed to last, as the participants likely understood before the ink was ever dry in the document. Although British citizens once again flocked to the mainland in order to experience the sights and sounds of Paris, their government sent Charles Whitworth, an imposing anti-Napoleonic figure, as its chosen ambassador. Whitworth was a noted opponent of Amens and threatened to withdraw from it after Napoleon subsequently broke the Treaty of Luneville by annexing the Italian province of Piedmont. Although the Frenchman's act violated his treaty with Austria, it only came after the exiled King of Piedmont had decided that he was unwilling to return to his former seat of power. France's advance into Piedmont happened to be exceptionally popular with the locals, and Napoleon's actions were subsequently ignored by Austria, the other signatory to the Luneville Treaty. The British who had no significant interests in that part of the world, were outraged at the violation of a treaty which they weren't a signatory to. Historian Frank McLinn is among those that remained shocked at the English behavior. He rightfully points out that Switzerland and Italy were within the Austrian sphere of influence, not the British. If Napoleon's actions there gave cause for concern, it was for the signatories of the Treaty of Luneville to react, not those of the Treaty of Amends. Faced with increasing objections from the British diplomat, Napoleon expressed his concern that the British press continued to run horrific front-page stories about his family. The Morning Post went so far as to describe him as an unclassifiable being, half-African, half-European, a Mediterranean mulatto. Rather than putting a stop to them, Whitworth began feeding the British press blatantly false stories, such as one which claimed that nine-tenths of the French population stood in opposition to the First Consul. 
with diplomatic channels rapidly failing. Napoleon, a former propaganda writer for the Robespierre regime, published an article which suggested that if England didn't fulfill their end of the Treaty of Amends, then France might be legally obligated to reconquer Egypt, which England, in direct violation of the treaty, had not yet vacated. When the King of England falsely declared that France was preparing a fleet for war against their cross-channel rivals, Napoleon loudly stated to the ambassadors of Russia and Spain that England wants war, but if they're the first to draw the sword, I'll be the last to sheath it. They don't respect treaties. The likelihood of a resumption of hostilities was high, but Napoleon still elected to make a desperate 11th hour bid for peace, caving on most of his original demands regarding British control of Malta but he was ultimately turned down. On May 18, 1803, France was again at war with England. McLean reveals to us that for Napoleon, the renewal of war came at least two years too early. Still, the emperor felt that France was up to the task, declaring that three days of misty weather and a bit of luck could make me the master of London Parliament and the Bank of England. The timing, however, was far more favorable to the British, as the French had nothing resembling the fleet that would be required to safely cross the Channel. Napoleon had drawn up invasion plans prior to his misadventure in Egypt, but decided to scrap them in favor of the creation of a significantly larger fleet. At the same time, England was far too reliant upon their sea power unable to muster a land force large enough to invade the mainland. Thus, a one-on-one fight far favored France over England. The key to the conflict would therefore lay in the hands of the rest of the European powers. If they stayed out of the conflict, Napoleon would go on to conquer England. If they chose to join up and form another coalition to hedge against the hegemonic power beneath Napoleon, then the Corsican would end up exiled. Before drawing in the other powers, England attempted to destabilize France from within. An assassination plot was uncovered in the fall of 1803. The plan was to kidnap Napoleon as he traveled between palaces in Paris. The plotters had successfully dug a tunnel between the main road and placed a barrel of gunpowder to blow up Napoleon's carriage as it passed overhead. However, the timing of the explosion was off, resulting in just a few innocent bystanders meeting a painful end. The plot included two of Napoleon's own generals, one of whom remained so popular that Napoleon was fearful to move against him, even after the evidence implicated him beyond a reasonable doubt. Instead, the first consul kidnapped the man whom the plotters sought to install on the French throne, the cousin of Louis XVI, a duke who was unlawfully taken in the middle of the night on March 20, 1804. He furiously denied his role in the plot and demanded to speak directly with Napoleon, 
but the request was refused and the royal was executed via firing squad by an ad hoc tribunal that had been set up in the aftermath. The first consul was out of patience, even refusing to listen to his wife Josephine, who desperately pleaded with her husband to spare the Bourbon's life. Meanwhile, one of the two generals implicated in the conspiracy took his own life, while the other was exiled. McLinn writes that Napoleon used the plot, regardless of the reality of the Bourbon's actual involvement, to become emperor. If he established a dynasty with hereditary succession, it would be pointless in the future for royalists to try to kill him. The legislative branch made that title official in May 1804. A vote was again confirmed via a referendum with 3.5 million yes votes to only 2,569 against. Lacking a son born in wedlock, he designated his elder brother Joseph as his immediate heir. The question immediately came up about what Josephine's role would be within the new empire. There was thought of Napoleon divorcing her at this moment. Oddly enough, the decision to make Josephine empress came out of anger rather than love. At this point, both unhappy participants in the relationship were constantly cheating on the other. Women were now throwing themselves at Napoleon, who was known to gift each girl 20000 for a night well spent. Josephine, meanwhile, not only continued to see her own slate of lovers throughout Paris, but was serving as an internal spy on her husband for his untrustworthy chief of police. Her fate became sealed after Josephine barged in on Napoleon sleeping with a 20-year-old bureaucrat. Her husband smashed the furniture in a rage while demanding that he was tired of being spied on by a jealous woman who could not give him children. It appeared as though Josephine had finally gone too far. When your friend breaks up with someone whom you've never liked, you have to be careful about unleashing a tidal wave of insults, as breakups don't always hold up. Napoleon's family happened to despise his wife. When the story of their fight reached the streets of Paris, his brothers and sisters rejoiced at the collapse of his marriage. McLinn tells us that it was this eruption of joy out of his family more than anything else that made the stubborn Corsican trick the Pope into traveling to Fontainebleau, the traditional seat for the coronation of a French monarch, in order to finally marry Josephine in a proper religious ceremony. For his part, the Pope believed that he was coming to Paris in order to receive French concessions regarding a prior treaty. Instead, he became a mere pawn in the propaganda machine of the Bonapartes. Napoleon and Josephine were married for the second time on December 1st, but the groom still hedged his bets, barring any witnesses from attending while failing to invite his local priest. Each of these two facts would preserve a technicality in case Napoleon decided to abandon ship in a few months. The next day, he was officially crowned as the Emperor of France. 
Although the Pope presided over the ceremony, Napoleon famously crowned himself before next crowning Josephine. Historian Patrice Guneffi writes that Napoleon's coronation was not just a religious ceremony, but a political act, a public declaration of his power and authority. By crowning himself, he was asserting his legitimacy as a ruler and establishing a new dynasty. He then turned his attention to creating a new nobility of France, undoing all of the work that the revolution had accomplished by dismantling the ancient system of feudalism. By the end of the Napoleonic Wars, France would have named 31 new dukes, 450 counts, 1,500 barons and knights. During this time, two secret fleets were under various states of construction in France. Once finished, Napoleon would finally be able to tempt a crossing of the Channel in order to proceed with a proper war against the English. Multiple incursions into French territory by the British had come to naught, and thus the war remained at a stubborn stalemate. As I mentioned earlier, the key to the war was how long the other European powers would remain sidelined. Napoleon had his chance in 1804, but a comedy of errors ensued. It began with Napoleon scrapping his first plan, which largely involved a secretive night crossing of more than 500 small ships. Having run out of money, the emperor was forced to take out a loan at the prohibitive interest rate of 15%. The plan was mostly bravado, as the emperor publicly claimed that the channel was merely a ditch that will be left as soon as someone has the guts to try. But the French had not yet solved the problem of how to launch so many ships on a single tide, something that had ruined prior invasion attempts in 1745-1759, as well as Napoleon's own prior attempt of 1789. Five years later, he hadn't solved the problem, as McLinn tells us of the general's plans to launch during a dense fog, revealing that Napoleon was apparently unaware of the chaos and near-certain disaster that would ensue if an uncoordinated armada tried to run the gauntlet in mutual invisibility. The Frenchman became cognizant of the challenges on July 20th, 1804, when he ordered a training mission to commence despite the appearance of a vicious incoming storm. His admiral refused to run the exercise, which would unnecessarily risk his men's lives. For his concern, he was fired on the spot. His replacement, Admiral Magan, went ahead with the exercise, ultimately wrecking a number of ships and resulting in the death of more than 2,000 Frenchmen. Seeing the results firsthand, Napoleon went back to the drawing board. The genesis of the problem was that the English patrolled the channel. They could concentrate their limited forces knowing full well where the French attack would originate from. In this third attempt at managing a crossing, Napoleon decided to outflank them, drawing them away from the shortest distance between the two rival nations. This time, he was the one let down by his admirals. 
Villeneuve, a captain within the French Navy, managed to successfully outwit the British in a daring run to escape the siege of France's southern ports. But after breaking out of the trap, he pulled back at the appearance of bad weather. Regarding the incident, Napoleon remarked, what is to be done with admirals who allow their spirits to sink and determine to hasten home at the first damage they may receive? A few topmasts carried away. Some casualties in a gale of wind are everyday occurrences. The greatest evil of our navy is that the men who command it are unused to all the risks of command. Rather than firing Villanueve, however, Napoleon was forced to promote him, after his lead admiral passed away from natural causes. The window for success remained open, but his flanking plan was a bold gambit. On land, Napoleon loved to have his forces approach their target from multiple paths. In this instance, he ordered Villanueve to once again break through the protracted siege, but instead of attacking nearby British Isles, he would head straight for the Caribbean in order to raid the faraway British colonies. The hope was that the imposing Royal Navy would be obligated to give chase across the Atlantic, allowing Napoleon's main force to travel via another route through the Atlantic in order to land on the western shores of Ireland in order to prepare for the long-awaited land invasion of England. Incredibly, the gambit initially worked, as England's top admiral, Horatio Nelson, pursued Villanueve all the way to the island of Barbados in the West Indies. But the hot pursuit messed up the French lines of communication, as Villanueve was supposed to connect with Captain Miseré in order to conduct a series of high-profile raids. Villanueve, aware of the British ships trailing him, tried to outmaneuver Nelson by changing course and direction several times. But that resulted in a failure to connect with Miseré's contacts at their planned rendezvous point. Failing to properly connect with Villanueve, the other Frenchmen panicked and set sail for France to directly speak to Napoleon to confirm what had appeared to be crackpot orders. That left Villanueve short of the ships that he needed to cause the damage required to free up the channel. Worse, Napoleon's fleet wasn't capable of crossing the channel without also including Villanueve's ships. Thus, the Admiral came under intense pressure from Napoleon to return to Europe to join the rest of the fleet in time for the invasion. The Emperor didn't realize until this point in time how hard it is to conduct a sea war on a tight timeline. After several months in the West Indies, Villanueve began the return journey, but was relentlessly pursued by Nelson's fleet, which had been reinforced with additional Caribbean ships freed up by the sudden disappearance of Misseray. The two fleets played a cat-and-mouse game across the ocean, with Villanueve trying to evade Nelson's superior force, while Nelson sought to engage the French fleet in battle. Historian N.A.M. Roger describes the situation. Villanueve had to run a gauntlet to get back to Europe, while Nelson had to force a battle to destroy the French fleet. 
The French fleet had to cross the Atlantic and make the Mediterranean safely if it was to be useful for the invasion. It was a game of chess, but played with ships. Despite Villanueva's best efforts to avoid confrontation, Nelson eventually caught up with the French fleet off the coast of Spain, leading to the Battle of Cape Fistier in July 1805. While both the French and allied Spanish fleets managed to escape from Nelson, the engagement weakened the French position and ultimately left the Frenchman's fleet stuck in port. McLinn tells us that this was the moment when a French admiral of genius might have acted decisively. But Villanueva dithered, pointlessly having his ships repainted while complaining to all who would listen that French naval tactics were obsolete. Nelson, meanwhile, arrived at Gibraltar on July 20th and at once headed north to join his strength to that of Calder and Cornwallis. 36 battleships now barred the entry to the channel. The end result of all of Napoleon's convoluted and serpentine global feints and stratagems was that the Royal Navy was present in strength at exactly the right point to destroy his invasion plans. Napoleon immediately saw his plans were sunk, lamenting, what a navy, what sacrifices all for nothing, all hope is gone. Villanueva, instead of entering the channel, has taken refuge in Cadiz. It is all over. He sent a letter to dismiss the admiral from the service. It was at this moment that Villanueva found his courage, driving the French armada out of port directly into the jaws of Nelson's forces. It was a maneuver that contradicted all known orders, resulting in an unmitigated disaster for France, known forever as the Battle of Trafalgar. The skill of Admiral Nelson more than made up for the French advantage of six extra ships. He split his forces into three columns, sinking 22 of the 33 French ships. Although 1,500 British sailors lost their lives, not a single one of the 27 British ships were sunk, making Trafalgar one of the most spectacular successes in British naval history. Alas, a French musketman managed to fatally wound Nelson, depriving the English of their greatest admiral. Historian John Sugden tells us that Trafalgar represented a remarkable achievement for the British Navy and an unmitigated disaster for the French Navy. While Roger states that the Battle of Trafalgar confirmed Britain's dominance of the seas and its ability to maintain its global empire, despite the threat posed by Napoleon's France. Villanueva paid the ultimate price for his mistake first residing in a British prison until 1806, when he committed suicide upon his forced return to France. The defeat at Trafalgar was a physical, spiritual, and mental blow to the morale of the French, as McLinn writes that, after 1805, Napoleon rarely again risked his warships.
American President Ronald Reagan was speaking of the Cold War when he uttered the phrase, We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. The thought remains applicable to France in 1805, as the European powers had begun to lose their patience with Emperor Napoleon. Austria had remained silent about it, but was privately fuming at Napoleon's annexations of territory residing within their sphere of influence. The Corsican went one step too far, however, by adding to his titles Emperor of Italy in Milan during a ceremony in May. His foreign advisor, Charles Talleyrand, who would soon turn into an Austrian spy, warned him to focus on maintaining positive relations with the Habsburgs, referring to them as the lodestone for which peace on the continent depended upon. McLinn explains that Austria ultimately joined the British-led anti-Napoleon coalition because of a patrician distaste for the new upstart empire and its bogus nobility. Russia's decision to engage France was a more complicated tale. Alexander became the Tsar of Russia in 1801. Although the assassins that took his father's life were in the pay of the British, Alexander seemed to harbor no ill will towards the English, a fact that has convinced many historians that he had been tipped off to the plot that vacated the throne. Central to the freshly elevated Tsar's European policy was the establishment of a new sphere of influence in the Balkans the precise area which England depended upon for the raw materials that were necessary for the construction and upkeep of the Royal Navy. Normally, this friction would be enough to keep the two powers at each other's throats. But two things pushed Alexander against Napoleon instead. The first was the Frenchman's distasteful trial and execution of the Bourbon Duke, who had previously been implicated in an attempted coup. The second factor was English coins, loads of them. Unable to summon enough troops to do the job against France, England agreed to pay Russia 1.25 million a year for every 100,000 troops that the Russian bear deployed against France. McLinn summarizes Alexander's motivation as being led by the twin factors of megalomania and jealousy of Napoleon an upstart who now claimed royalty. In May of 1805, the three forces of England, Russia, and Austria expected to field 500,000 men against France. Napoleon didn't lose a second to hesitation, informing advisors that the die is cast, the operation has begun, before proclaiming that on the 17th I will be in Germany with 200,000 men. The banks, however, weren't as confident. The speculation that followed obliged Napoleon to press for a quick victory in order to stave off a financial collapse. He conscripted 80,000 and then shifted the land forces that had been originally intended for the cross-channel invasion into a grand army of 350,000. The little corporal then split his forces up into seven evenly divided corps mixed with cavalry, infantry, and artillery. Austria was geographically the closest of the three allies. 
and thus represented the Frenchman's first target. The Habsburgs had brawled with Napoleon twice before. The first time, the Frenchman had been sent to northern Italy. The second war also occurred largely on the battlefields of northern Italy. Unknown to his enemies, however, was the fact that he had intended to make southern Germany central to that second fight. The same upstart general that had prevented the Germany route, however, happened to now be exiled due to his involvement in the previous assassination attempt. Believing that Napoleon would again draw from his prior playbook, Austria arranged their entire defense around Italy. Their mistake played directly into the Corsican's hands. He crossed the Rhine into Germany on September 24th. The advance was like lightning, crossing the Danube River without opposition and arriving before the Russians who had been hindered by questions regarding who was actually in charge of the Allied forces. Each of Napoleon's separate corps had been routed along a separate path in order to avoid congestion and pressure on the land's limited food supplies. These marches covered 20 miles a day, oftentimes beginning at 4 a.m. in order to take advantage of the cooler morning temperatures. The army would stop and camp at noon, spending the rest of the afternoon foraging. By approaching from multiple directions, Napoleon was able to envelop the Austrian army, forcing their commander to surrender along with 50,000 men on October 20th. After writing home to Josephine that he had never been as tired as he was after the advance, he positioned his men towards Vienna, the capital of Austria's empire. His intention was to compel the Russians into a desperate attempt in order to rescue their allies' capital. But the Red Army wouldn't take the bait, allowing Napoleon to walk into the emptied seat of the Austrian Empire on November 12th, taking possession of 500 cannon and 100,000 muskets that had been left behind. As was his tradition, the married first consul found a local woman to his suiting and spent the night pretending as though he was the city's rightful ruler. Historian David Chandler details the restraint that was uniquely shown to his enemy's capital, writing that Napoleon treated Vienna, one of Europe's most elegant capitals with a degree of forbearance that had been missing from his earlier occupations. He ordered that no wine or spirits be sold to his troops, and he put an end to the worst excesses of pillage and rape that had characterized previous occupations. While the obvious move might have been to continue advancing against the Russians, Napoleon's forces were exhausted, and another series of daring marches would risk stretching his own lines of communication too far. Thus, he lingered for two weeks in Vienna, attending concerts, operas, and balls, as well as visiting the city's famed museums and art galleries. He even held meetings with Austrian officials to negotiate a peace settlement. That last bit is quite a cocky feat, as it meant that he had to invite the Austrians into his city of Vienna for the negotiations. But there was no chance of a surrender while the Russian bear remained just outside of the city hunting for its prey. 
Napoleon again attempted to bait them into attacking on his terms. First, he diluted his forces by sending one-third of his army into what became the Czech Republic. The calculations now showed the Russians with a significant numerical advantage outside the village of Austerlitz, 89,000 to 53,000. Again, however, the bear wouldn't take the bait. Napoleon next used the negotiations with Austria to encourage Russia to attack, feigning weakness during the meetings by displaying an over-eagerness to be done with the conflict. He even feigned confusion, hoping that the enemy would believe that the little corporal had finally lost his wits. Alas, his performance wasn't worthy of an Oscar. Still unable to tempt his enemy into making an assault, he risked exposing his line of retreat, allowing the second-rate Russian commander to believe that he could successfully envelop the French forces. In reality, Napoleon had chosen the ground, the date, and the means to turn the tables on his opponent, as two of his seven divisions were just arriving to the designated battlefield via separate, undetectable routes. McLinn tells us that the bait was obvious, and perhaps too obvious, but the Allies took it. The battlefield was covered in dense fog on the morning of December 2nd, as the Russians made their long-awaited enveloping move at 4 a.m. Napoleon, the Emperor of France and Italy, patiently sat in the center of the trap, calm as can be. Four hours into the battle, one of the two surprise French regiments emerged on the Russian flanks. At 9 a.m., Napoleon signaled a surprise advance, as the second new force emerged, splitting the Russian forces at the same time that the sun managed to finally break through the morning's fog. Napoleon, the former artilleryman, turned to the cannons, shooting holes into the frozen lake drowning the Russian forces that had unwittingly been sucked in too far on a ground that they hadn't properly scouted. McLinn summarizes the day's actions by writing, At Austerlitz, Napoleon won his most perfect victory. This battle was to him what Gogamella had been to Alexander, Cain to Hannibal, and Alicia to Julius Caesar. For the loss of 1,305 Frenchmen and 6,940 wounded, he had inflicted 11,000 Russian casualties and 4,000 Austrian. He had also captured 40 colors and taken 180 cannon from his enemies. There was the same discrepancy in prisoners, 573 French as against 12,000 Allied captives. Austrian historian Gunther Rothenberg claims that Austerlitz was a decisive victory for Napoleon that forever changed the balance of power in Europe and marked the high point of his military career. The significance of the victory was immediately clear as the Times, an English newspaper, wrote in the battle's immediate aftermath that the French emperor has again shown himself the first captain of the age. His masterly maneuvers have forced the enemy to attack him in a position chosen by himself and he has beaten them with a slaughter so considerable as to induce them to sue for peace. 
Tsar Alexander hastily withdrew his forces to Poland, imploring the French ambassador to tell your master that I am going away. Tell him he performed miracles yesterday, that the battle has increased my admiration for him, that he is a man predestined by heaven, that it will require a hundred years for my army to equal his. Austria promptly signed the Peace of Pressburg, ceding Venice and other territories to the Kingdom of Italy, paying nine million to France and ceding territory in Germany to France. It was in the afterglow of Austerlitz that Napoleon made a major mistake, redrawing the map of his empire and dividing up France's new territories amongst his family members and generals who displayed great valor. The Confederation of the Rhine, as Germany was named, would become a proxy state of France, one ruled by Napoleon's stepdaughter's husband. Italy was given to Napoleon's brother Joseph. Although the British didn't surrender, their war shifted back into a Cold War mentality, as the English commander had told his marshals to roll up that map of Europe. It will not be needed these ten years upon hearing the results of Austerlitz. Iman Ali teaches us that two things define you, your patience when you have nothing and your attitude when you have everything. Rather than enjoying the relative peace that came in the aftermath of Austerlitz, keep in mind that England technically remained at war with France, Napoleon picked fights with the Pope in retaliation for the pontiff's decision to maintain neutrality during the conflict. The emperor outlined his expectations to a loyal cardinal, revealing that, for the Pope, I am Charlemagne. I therefore expect to be treated from this point of view. I shall change nothing in appearance if they behave well. Otherwise, I shall reduce the Pope to be merely Bishop of Rome. The Frenchman then unnecessarily violated Prussian neutrality. The reason for the incursion was merely because Napoleon could, as Prussia was devoid of allies at this particular moment. He offered them a take-it-or-leave-it peace agreement that stripped the proud nation of its most important territories. Fearing that he had no other choice, the Prussian emperor took the deal. But after it became known that the French were willing to literally trade their kingdom for a British peace agreement, the Prussian queen inspired an insurgency. Predictably, the Prussian insurgents were no match for Napoleon. In fact, it was so much of a mismatch that the French hesitated for a month in order to plan out countermeasures as they assumed that the Prussian queen must have some sort of secret up her sleeve. Over the course of 33 days of fighting, the French inflicted 55,000 casualties and forced the surrender of another 40,000 against only 12,000 of their own. Prussia, now humiliated in front of their European peers, was required to pay 159 million francs in reparations, an absurd figure considering that Austria had only been charged 40 million for its defeat. The emperor also obligated them to join in his continental blockade of England, which began in November of 1806. Historian Andrew Roberts tells us 
that the 33-day war was a watershed moment in European history. It marked the end of the old order and the beginning of a new era dominated by Napoleon and the French Empire. From Berlin, the Corsican moved on to Warsaw, invading the small Polish kingdom while dangling the carrot of independence if they would only field 40,000 troops to fight beneath his direction. He also made inroads with the Ottoman Sultan in hopes that the Turks would join him when hostilities with the Russians began anew as Napoleon was slowly encroaching eastward into their sphere of influence. Wanting to renew hostilities on his terms, Napoleon wintered in Warsaw in what was described as a non-stop festival of concerts, balls, parties, fetes, and other spectacles. On the way to one such party, Countess Marie Waleska caught his eye with Napoleon ordering his troops to later find the beautiful blonde-haired peasant girl that had stopped by his carriage. Marie was 18 years old and currently married to a 77-year-old Polish nationalist. Yep, if you can't see it coming, this next part is going to make some of you squeamish. Napoleon's men revealed how much their emperor desired the aging count's wife, and through group encouragement, convinced him to grant his approval for an affair. Marie, however, was quite appalled at the idea, and showed up to her first ball with the emperor dressed more like a nun than a great lady. McLynn reveals to us that after the ball ended, Napoleon began a full press assault, writing to the young lady that, I saw only you, I admired only you, I desired only you. The married woman threw the jewels that he sent her on the floor, proclaiming that the emperor must take her for a whore. Napoleon, however, wouldn't relent, writing to her, Come to me, all your hopes will be fulfilled. Your country will be dearer to me when you take pity on my poor heart. Whenever I have thought a thing impossible or difficult to obtain, I have desired it all the more. Nothing discourages me. I am accustomed to seeing my wishes met. Your resistance subjugates me. I want to force you, yes, force you to love me. Marie, I have brought back to life your country's name. I will do much more. Faced with constant pressure from Napoleon, her husband, and her countrymen, Marie finally relented. McLynn tells us that their first encounter appears to have been half-rape, half-seduction, after she had pulled back from his caresses after seemingly changing her mind. After it was done, she was left in tears, with Napoleon comforting her by vowing that he would make good on all of his promises to her. From there, the two entered into a full-fledged relationship, with Marie gradually falling in love with her abuser. To be clear, this doesn't excuse his behavior. Marital rape or forced sexual encounters regularly happen and can be just as disturbing, if not more, than an assault by a stranger. About 9% of women and 0.5% of men report that they have been raped by an intimate partner. To those who express disbelief at such a figure, history has regularly attempted to sugarcoat sexual violence between partners. With a number of ancient and modern civilizations passing marry your rapist laws, which would excuse any sexual assault that occurred 
if the two individuals got married after the assault. Incredibly, 12 nations maintain such laws on their books today. While the United States never had such a law, Missouri and Florida both have legal loopholes that disgustingly serve similar purposes in order to skirt statutory rapes of minors. Perhaps if Napoleon hadn't been distracted with Marie, he would have realized that the tenets that made his system of warfare so effective weren't possible in this part of the world. Eastern Europe didn't have the pre-built infrastructure necessary to move such large armies, particularly ones that were dependent upon heavy artillery. McLinn tells us that cold, rain, snow, quicksands, inadequate supplies, and guerrilla attacks by Prussian partisans all worked against Napoleon. Even the sun seemed to have turned against the French, as an earlier-than-usual nightfall cost him multiple decisive victories. Concerned with Napoleon's growing dominance in Europe, as well as his encroachment into their backyard, the Russian Tsar relaunched his war against France placing the campaign in the capable hands of General Benzinson, whom historian Jeremy Black called an able commander, an intelligent and resourceful man, and a master of the defensive. Benzinson's skill was on full display at the Battle of Elau, which began as a small skirmish before turning into a bloodbath. McLinn writes that after 14 hours, tens of thousands of corpses littered the field, where the deep whiteness of the snow was stained, streaked, and saturated with blood. 25,000, one of every three Frenchmen, made the casualty list, while the Russians only lost 15,000. The French surgeon described the scene as thus, Never was so small a space covered with so many corpses. Everywhere the snow was stained with blood, the snow which had fallen and which was still falling began to hide the bodies from the grieving glances of passerbys. The bodies were heaped up wherever there were small groups of furs behind which the Russians had fought. Thousands of guns, helmets, and breastplates were scattered on the road or in the fields. On the slope of a hill, which the enemy had obviously chosen to protect themselves, there were groups of a hundred bloody bodies, horses, maimed but still alive, waited to fall in their turn from hunger on the heaps of bodies. We had hardly crossed one battlefield when we found another, all of them strewn with bodies. The French emperor retreated into the arms of Marie and suspended operations from February 1806 to June 1807. During that time, Napoleon raised his forces to 600,000, having called up six new divisions. One-fourth of those men amassed in Poland, outnumbering the Russians assembled against them by a two-to-one margin. Napoleon finally managed to trap Benningsen's forces against a river and achieved a decisive victory for the first time in four tries. The loss forced Tsar Alexander to begin negotiations with his French counterpart. With neither ever having set foot on the other's territory, they agreed to meet in the middle of a river. The meeting couldn't have gone better, with the Russian ruler introducing himself by stating, Sire, I hate the English as much as you do. To which Napoleon responded, In that case, peace is established.
a bromance quickly emerged with Napoleon raving that Alexander was as beautiful as the god Apollo. It is clear the personal rapport between the two men eased tensions and paved the way for the Treaty of Tassilt. But how could two leaders who had previously been sacrificing the lives of tens of thousands of their citizens in order to oppose the other get along so swimmingly? It just so happened that the Tsar was a schizophrenic who experienced frequent mood swings. Thus, it is possible that Napoleon just happened to have met him on the right day. For the vain Napoleon compliments from his counterpart such as, there is no one like him in Europe, surely smoothed the way to an agreement. McLinn reveals to us that the Treaty of Tassilt gave the Tsar a free hand against European Turkey and Finland. Russia would join Napoleon's blockade of Britain. The Russian Navy would help France capture Gibraltar. A separate agreement was signed with Prussia, which saw Napoleon's less competent brother Jerome installed as their king. For the better part of the next two years, Britain was forced to focus its war efforts on Russia and the Baltic states, whose abundant natural resources were essential to the continued success of the Royal Navy. Thus, Napoleon again faced an inflection point. He could return to France and be content with an empire that essentially included all of continental Europe, or he could continue to demean and belittle those around him. McLinn reveals that he chose the latter, writing that, at Tassilt, the emperor crossed an invisible Rubicon. He thought himself poised on the cusp of permanent European hegemony, but was about to start sliding down a slippery slope whose end would be disaster. Upon his return to Paris in 1807, Napoleon decided that it was time to divorce Josephine once and for all. He was 38 and she was 44. At this point, it was clear to all that the two of them were never going to produce a child together. At Tassilt, he had discussed the possibility of marrying Alexander's sister in order to cement their new alliance but his foreign minister, Talleyrand, suggested that the emperor would be better off marrying an Austrian Habsburg. Despite the public talk regarding his next wife, Napoleon cowardly hesitated handing Josephine her walking papers, writing of his wife that, I truly loved her, although I didn't respect her. She was a liar and an utter spendthrift, but she had a certain something that was irresistible. She was a woman to her very fingertips. It also didn't help that the notoriously superstitious general viewed her as his good luck charm. Although his heart clung on to Josephine, his loins urged him to bring in Marie from Poland in 1808. During their days in Paris together, the middle-aged emperor and his younger lover liked to pretend that they were just two regular citizens would meet up in a bar in order to engage the locals in conversation about what they thought of that devil Bonaparte, before they would then anonymously check into a local hotel. The divorce and his remarriage would have to wait until he once again grew bored. In an effort to tighten the economic noose around England's neck, 
he invaded Spain and Portugal in February of 1808. Napoleon pounced after perceiving them to be on the decline, ripe fruit for the plucking. French forces were able to defeat the Spanish forces arrayed against them in order to occupy Madrid. The quick southern thrust led to the abdication of King Charles IV and the installment of his brother Joseph Bonaparte as King of Spain. Napoleon justified his incursion by claiming that he was bringing order to a chaotic situation in Spain, ensuring stability and progress for the country. However, most Spaniards viewed the French as invaders and set in motion a guerrilla war against the occupying forces. England sent 9,000 soldiers in support of the insurrection, which would plague the entirety of Joseph's rule on the Iberian Peninsula. The conflict between the two sides was brutal, during which 10,000 POWs were stranded on a barren island left to starve to death. At other times, men were mutilated, crucified, and buried alive during the conflict. The stories that came out of Spain only encouraged freedom fighters to take up arms in Napoleon's other territories. Obligated to shift more troops into Spain, Napoleon hastily arranged for another meeting with the Russians. A charm offensive commenced with Alexander taking one of Napoleon's former mistresses to bed, after which Napoleon spoke glowingly of his peer in a letter to Josephine, which read, I am satisfied with Alexander, and he should be satisfied with me. If he were a woman, I think I would make him my mistress. But the meetings weren't as fruitful as they could have been, as Charles Talleyrand had become a double agent for the Austrians. Under orders from the Habsburg, the foreign minister actively labored to sabotage the bromance. Ultimately, it was Napoleon himself that caused the negotiations to fail. Focusing on his own concerns, the emperor continually pushed to marry the Tsar's sister. As had been his way, he refused to take no as an answer, ignoring the fact that Alexander continually pushed the proposal off the table. The annoyance in this realm eventually spilled into the others, resulting in Russia refusing to commit any troops against Austria, which in turn would prevent the French from shifting their main forces against Spain. A month after their meetings ended, Tsar Alexander announced that his sister was engaged to another. The revelation was tantamount to a very public slap in the face of Napoleon. Seeking to control the damage, Alexander offered the hand of his 14-year-old younger sister Anna to the 40-year-old Napoleon, but only after she had reached an appropriate age for marriage. Before the lustful middle-aged emperor could even comprehend what had happened, Talleyrand leaked the terms of their treaty to Vienna. The information included his understanding that the Russians weren't willing to raise a hand against the Austrians. Immediately, Vienna decided on a spring offensive against France. While the Austrians prepared for a resumption of hostilities, Napoleon went to war in Spain in an attempt to swiftly pacify the growing rebellion. He methodically destroyed the insurrection before proceeding to Madrid, where he swept away all the remaining relics of feudalism 
as well as overseeing the dismantling of the Spanish Inquisition. He was required to rush back to Paris before the situation had stabilized on January 23, 1808, after becoming informed about the Austrians' mobilization as well as a plan hatched from within his own cabinet to depose him in favor of his marshal, Marat. Upon arriving back to the capital, he dealt with Talleyrand first, punctuating a three-hour insult session with the less-than-eloquent phrase, You are nothing but shit in silk stockings. The foreign minister had leaked that France had become weary of war as each victory beneath Napoleon merely brought forth a new war to fight. It wasn't just conjecture. During a particularly horrendous march across the mountains of Spain, Napoleon overheard one of his soldiers loudly wishing that someone would have the guts to shoot the emperor so they could return home. Rather than confronting the disgruntled soldier, the Corsican pretended to not have heard the treasonous remark. Spain's backbone, as well as a resurgent strand of nationalism in Germany and Prussia, had given Austria the belief that the fourth time against Napoleon might be the charm. Most importantly, the Austrians had studied the little corporal's tactics, setting up their forces to mimic Francis. Faced with an existential threat, Napoleon turned to his old tactics, ordering a mass conscription, informing one advisor that I have only one passion, only one mistress, France. I sleep with her. She never lets me down. She pours out her blood and treasure. If I need 500,000 men, she gives them to me. Yet at this point and time, conscripted men had begun buying their way out of the service, leaving Napoleon with the dregs of society. Still, he was able to reach Vienna on May 13th. Once again, the Austrians surrendered the city without a fight, but blew each of the bridges across the Danube River. Napoleon was fully aware of the unique challenge that he faced, writing that to cross a river like the Danube in the presence of an enemy that knows the ground and has the sympathy of the inhabitants is one of the most difficult military operations conceivable. What he didn't know was that the Austrians were prepared to launch logs down the river while his men were crossing on vulnerable pontoons. Not waiting for the entire force to cross, Napoleon gave fight to the entrenched Austrians, but failed to dislodge them. In the end, he was forced to retreat to the island of Labau. He was even compelled to leave his wounded out in the field for a full 48 hours. The Austrians, perhaps shocked that they had finally beaten Napoleon, decided not to pursue an offensive which would have likely ended the emperor's reign. They had, however, again pierced the cloud of invincibility that Napoleon had shrouded his personality cult in. The hope was that the Austrian victory would be enough to trigger a rebellion throughout the Germanic lands. My kids play a lot of video games, despite the fact that they probably aren't old enough for many of those games. When they struggle with a puzzle or a level, they get incredibly frustrated. 
Rather than calming down, they often rush headlong into the game, causing them to make more and more simple mistakes, only increasing their frustration level until they finally crack and have a massive meltdown. The French forces remain trapped on the island of Labau for a month, ringing it with enough cannons to make it impossible to reach Napoleon. McLinn then explains that Napoleon painstakingly built proper bridges across the Danube, which would be invulnerable to anything but actual Austrian occupation. Isolated on the island for a month, by the end of June, he had constructed five more bridges across the Danube, three of them to Lubau, and built stockades pile-driven into the riverbed upstream to block the passage of fire ships or floating logs and hulks. Additionally, he stationed a fleet of naval gunboats on the river. Amazingly, the Austrians remained inactive in face of this buildup, waiting for the general German uprising which never came. On July 4th, the Corsican broke out of his island hideaway. An intense six hours of nonstop fighting resulted in the French evacuating the island. But it wasn't a decisive victory, as the Austrians withdrew in good order without abandoning any of their big guns or standards. For their part, the French army was too exhausted to pursue the retreating Austrians. Two weeks later, the Habsburgs asked for a ceasefire. According to historian David Chandler, the Austrian army was not ready, and its finances were not in a state to sustain a major campaign. Ultimately, their plans had hinged upon other rebellions rising up, but they had acted before securing the proper assurances. They drew out the peace negotiations while the British attempted to invade Walcheren Island in the Netherlands. But the 40,000-strong British force suffered from an epidemic that arose from the island's poor sanitation systems. Napoleon once again settled down in Vienna during the negotiations, impregnating a local mistress while receiving the good news that his mistress Marie was also expecting a Bonaparte child. The two acts made it clear that Napoleon remained capable of producing a child, and thus the subject of Empress Josephine came back into the forefront of the emperor's mind. If he cared merely about love, then Napoleon would have married Marie, who successfully gave birth to their son, a boy who was quickly identified as the future king of Poland. The emperor of France, however, had come from a minor noble family in backwards Corsica. Growing up, he had despised the fact that his fellow cadets at Brienne had continually rubbed their noble French heritage in his face. Napoleon wanted to belong, not just because he was phenomenal at commanding men in battle, but because others viewed him as legitimate. Thus, he looked to two of the old guards of royal families for Josephine's replacement, the Russian Romanovs and the Austrian Habsburgs. He again inquired as to the availability of Alexander's younger sister, who was now 16, but was again rebuffed at the appropriateness of a 16-year-old getting hitched for the sole purpose of getting knocked up by a middle-aged war-mongering Frenchman. Rebuffed, he turned to the Austrians. The decision that followed is baffling on all fronts. 
the Austrians decided to sacrifice one of their own to the man whom they had stylized as an ogre for the better part of two decades. One courtier explained the marriage by stating that it was sometimes necessary to sacrifice a virgin to the minotaur. The French populace were also left flummoxed, as the designated bride was announced to be Marie-Louise, the niece of Marie Antoinette. McLinn remarks that to the French it seemed like the final abandonment of revolutionary principles, for what could be more blatant than another Austrian marriage? But all Napoleon saw was a walking womb. The girl was 18 years old and remained certified as a virgin, having never been left alone with a man. Her mother had produced 16 children, and although she had a trace of the dreaded Habsburg jaw, she was known for a spotless track record of good health. But there remained one problem. Napoleon was still married to Josephine. He had made the decision to divorce his wife in October of 1809, but wouldn't inform her until the end of November. There were signs, however, as he had the door between her apartment and his sealed up. Although she sought to talk to him, he refused to meet with her for three weeks, purposefully spending time doing things that she was known to deplore, such as the time that he and his buddies spent the day slaughtering 80 wild boar in a Roman-style arena. Proving that even emperors aren't all-powerful, he encouraged others to break up with her for him, but was refused by all of his subordinates. He finally worked up the courage to tell her that it was all over while out for dinner on November 30th. She didn't take it very well, shrieking uncontrollably while lying on the carpet until aides came to the emperor's assistance and physically carried her up to her apartments. They publicly announced the disintegration of their marriage on December 14th, but the two continued to regularly correspond and spend time together, something that his new wife, Marie Louise, absolutely loathed. At this point in time, Napoleon had already locked up the Pope for his unwillingness to support the blockade against England. Thus, a cardinal officially presided over the divorce ceremony. The emperor did everything by the book this time around, as he mistakenly believed that the second marriage was the ceremony that would result in the rest of Europe accepting him and his rule. Any cardinals that refused his invite to the wedding were hauled off to jail. The two were initially married by proxy, after which the newlyweds were free to consummate the marriage. Proving that he was indeed a scoundrel, Napoleon kept on with his current mistress, an Italian, all the way up to the night before the ceremony. The emperor wrote of his first evening with his second wife the line that, she asked me to do it again. The subsequent public ceremony happened across two days at the beginning of April. Proving that he was tone-deaf to the past, the proceedings followed the precise format of the wedding ceremony between Louis XVI and his Austrian bride, Marie Antoinette. For three months, the two remained in honeymoon mode, and by autumn, the couple were expecting a baby. 
the labor was difficult, with his doctors at one point telling Napoleon that it might come down to saving his wife or the child. Despite the fact that the entire point of the marriage was to have a proper noble child, Napoleon chose to save his wife. Thankfully, it didn't come down to that, as the doctors were able to save both. Although the baby was initially thought to have been born stillborn, it let out a loud cry a few minutes after entering our world. They named the boy Francois Charles Joseph Bonaparte. One hundred cannons rang out to announce the birth of the heir. It all changed overnight for Marie Louise. Napoleon quickly returned to his prior habits regarding work and mistresses. His family shifted their hatred from Josephine to her as the birth of her son had managed to successfully cut them out of the line of succession. The French people refused to embrace her, but that was likely mutual, as she was surrounded by the same people who had attended and cheered her aunt's execution. It was 1811, and Napoleon should have been on top of the world. His empire had held against Austria's attempt to break it from within. The British appeared to be neutralized behind a robust continental blockade. The Spanish insurgency continued, but Napoleon remained unconcerned, believing that he could smash it whenever he wanted to. His wife was from ancient royal blood, and he had given birth to a son that he would be able to pass his kingdom on to. In this happy state, he missed all of the cracks that were emerging throughout his empire. Historian Andrew Roberts, in his book Napoleon, A Life, writes, The political consequences of the marriage, however, were dire for Napoleon. It was the first time he had allowed his personal desires to influence his political decisions, and it was also the first time that he had taken a step that genuinely offended the sensibilities of the French people. Similarly, historian Adam Zamoski writes, The marriage with Marie-Louise was a serious error. It may have provided him with a son and a possible heir, but it alienated his most ardent supporters and made him appear more like a Habsburg than a Bonaparte. But the most poignant quote belongs to historian J. Christopher Harold, who writes, The marriage was a mistake politically, and it revealed that Napoleon had begun to believe in the legitimacy of his regime rather than in his own exceptionalism. He had crossed a line, and he would never again be the same. We will explore those cracks in our next episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.